I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is an Agents of Impact podcast. And that early impact that the Whole Earth Catalog had on the broader American culture grew out of the same forces that were creating Silicon Valley. That's John Markoff, the longtime New York Times tech writer and author of the new biography, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. We talked psychedelic drugs, the roots of Silicon Valley, and Brand's knack for being in the right place at the right time. Let's jump right into our conversation. We call these Agents of Impact podcasts. I think this is sort of a double Agents of Impact. Uh, Stuart Brand is clearly an Agent of Impact, and, and you'll you'll help us understand exactly how and why. Um, but you are an Agent of Impact, John, and I want to get at your story as well. And I think at the top, I just want to have full disclosure that you know, I consider you a friend and also that we have been um, sort of uh, friendly competitors over the years as well and in our newspaper days. So it's a real pleasure to have you with us. And I really was intrigued by this book. Tell, just tell us how you came to the project. Well, well, so I have this background. Um, in 2000, I began work on a, a book called What the Dormouse uh, Said, How the 60 Counterculture uh, Shaped the Personal Computer Industry. And that was about stuff that happened right around Stanford. And of course, Stuart not only went to Stanford University, uh, but he came back and started the whole catalog in Menlo Park, right during the period that I was interested in in Dormouse. So for me, it was a puzzle. But the reason I actually began work on the biography was I was thinking about leaving the New York Times in 2016. And all of a sudden, Kevin Kelly, who's a friend, and he's also a protege of Stuart and a friend of Stuart's. Uh, called me up and said, hey, someone should write a biography of Stuart Brand. It should be you. And he hit me at just the right time. Uh, I was looking for a a way out of the times. Uh, Stuart was part of that puzzle that I was interested in about the roots of Silicon Valley. And I was also, you know, Stuart did in fact have many lives, many of which I I sort of followed at a half, you know, half a generation, a decade behind. And... um, so in a sense, I mean, I considered Dormouse to be an anti-autobiography. It was what happened uh, on the peninsula while I was gone. And in a way, th- this is a continuation of that anti-biography uh, uh, idea. <laughs> what was going on in the world that I missed? <laughs> a, way to, a, way to, a way to catch up on, on all of this that you were sort of around um, and um, have kind of carried on. I want to also say in my other full disclosure about Stuart Brand is, and I and I was another half generation behind, but the Whole Earth Catalog was the seminal uh, publication or book of my childhood. Um, and it, in a sense, informed a kind of whole sensibility. I went to a, a summer camp called Earth Camp One that built geodesic domes and they were, everything we did was straight out of the Whole Earth Catalog. So I was part of the kind of phenomena that he helped engender and that you capture so well in the book. Um, okay, so where do we start? Let's let's um, let's get some of the obvious sort of markers out of the way. There was a whole there was a whole early life which you which you do which you do good service to, but but I think people start tuning in, you know, with 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 the 60s and the trips festival and the psychedelic experimentation. And I hadn't realized he was literally actually part of some of the, you know, um, scientific experiments around LSD and, and, and whatnot. So that's going to be obviously a hot button. And, and, and you get into that a little bit in Dormouse too. So give us the, the short version of the psychedelic history of Silicon Valley. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I had something I also dealt with in, um, in Dormouse because I was trying to understand why Silicon ha- Valley happened where it did and when it did. 
And I'm not a technological determinist, unlike Kevin Kelly. I believe that culture and politics and society um, serve as some sort of a soup in which technology evolves in. So why did Silicon Valley, why did the personal computer and the internet sort of get birthed right around Stanford between 65 and 75? And Stuart Wright was right in the middle of that. And you have to go back. I mean, if you're you're asking about psychedelics, you have to go back to a really fascinating character by the name of uh, Al Hubbard. And uh, Al Hubbard was the Johnny Appleseed of LSD on the West Coast, I guess, to simplify it. he was an interesting uh, uh, and quirky character who probably was involved in the pre-OSS. He was he was involved in uranium smuggling, arms dealing, and he also stumbled across LSD in Europe very early on. And he was a believer. And he was going up and down the West Coast, and he basically ended up uh, turning on a group of mostly engineers right around the Stanford campus in late 50s, early 60s, I mean, really early on. And those included some engineers at Stanford University, and they got into this mode of trying to understand the relationship between creativity and LSD. And they created an organization called the International Foundation for Advanced Study. And in 1962, they began taking probably ultimately 500 mostly technical people on the peninsula through an intense LSD experiment. In the midst of all of this, Stuart Brand, who'd been a Stanford student, comes back to the Bay Area, and one of the things he wants to do, because actually uh, he shows up at the very dawn of Esalen, and they, Esalen began with a, with a seminar on LSD, and S- Stuart is just completely excited to try LSD, and so he signs up for this, at that point it was $500 experiment, and goes through a very intense uh, experience with LSD. At Esalen, and just for listeners who don't know, it's a it's a, a beautiful spot right at the on the cliffs of Big Sur with beautiful hot springs that became a haven for a kind of um, emergent consciousness at the time. That's exactly exactly what it was. Yes. So, um, so uh, Stuart uh, had this incredible knack of being at the right place at the right time repeatedly over a long period of time, and I don't think he understands that. You know. In Dormouse, I referred to him as being Zelig-like, and and then I decided that Zelig wasn't the quite the right uh, analogy uh, because it sort of refers to shape shifting. And there were some cons, there are some constant in in Stewart's uh, in his politics and his in his view of the world. And so then I tried um, uh, I've tried other uh, you know analogies. Nothing quite works. He's he's idiosyncratic. Yeah, but I think it's- I think it's 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 staring you right in the face, John. He was a journalist um, in, in some ways, and yeah. not just a not just a print journalist in, in a narrow sense, but he was looking for the cutting edge of the story. It sounds like, and he would find his way through some kind of, as you said, in nose that he had to the people who were kind of at the cutting edge, which in in large part were in California in this milieu that he had come into. Um, but he was he was he was writing about it. He was literally writing about it in many cases of, with some seminal uh, magazine pieces. And but he was also sort of framing it in a way, or or, or packaging it in a way, and, and 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 explaining it to others. Right? Yeah. He he uh, he went through a period where he he wanted to be uh, a journalist. He wrote a very important early story for the Rolling Stone um, about space war, with the first video game um, that w- was the way. 
people like myself learned about personal computing and computer networks. Uh, I read that piece when it was in the Rolling Stone in 72. And so it, it was very influential. Uh, but, you know, he, he tried different hats. Um, journalism was just one of the hats. I mean, he, you know, after the catalog, he, he went back and became an editor of a, of a, a magazine that he created, Coevolution Quarterly. So that was journalism, too, in a way. Well, maybe journalism is wrong, but he had a very media or has a very media friendly way of pulling ideas together and pulling people together. So he was kind of a translator, maybe as a better way or a, or a popularizer. Maybe that's not the right word. But is there a way that he he kind of staked out the ideas and then let others kind of, you know, follow follow on, including yourself. And at some level, like I said, including myself um, to sort of flesh out the, the rest of the story after he's kind of moved on to the next new thing. Yeah, that, you know, he would show up first. Um, and, and sometimes, I mean, you know, when somebody asked Stuart what he did at one point, he said, he said to, he responded, I find things and I found things and uh, finding things speaks to what you're saying. And then founding things speaks to his desire to create sus- institutions that are sustaining. He takes pride okay. in that as well. Okay. Let's get, let's get that. Let's just tick through some of the other things that people will, will find uh, fascinating. And um, one of them, and again, um, you were sort of in the same um, area in the, in the sort of Palo Alto, mid-peninsula, so, you know, so now now people would call it Silicon Valley area. But but he was uh, over the hill from Palo Alto in La Honda for a few years with Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and on the bus and well, well, became yeah. So he was a Tom Wolf uh, novel. Yeah, he was a he he was an arm's length prankster. I mean, you say on the bus, he liked to think of himself as an off the bus prankster. Um, he didn't, uh, you know, he held Kesey at a little bit of a distance, but he got involved with the pranksters. Um, and famously, he created the most successful and largest acid test, which was called the Trips Festival, which happened in San Francisco in January of 1966, while LSD was still legal. And he was the one who organized that. The pranksters were a little bit uh, disorganized, I guess is the polite way to say it. And Stuart was the one who sort of, when, they, when he realized that they wanted to do this big event, he was the one who put it together. And it's an important moment because, uh, as Tom Wolfe described it, it was the moment that the 10,000 hippies living in the San Francisco Bay Area realized that there were 10,000 hippies and there was this identity that was created and it led directly to Haight-Ashbury and to the Fillmore music scene. It was the spark that lit both of those things. And and phenomena like the Grateful Dead came up, come out of that and, yeah. and it's a sort of well-known historical era. But you're saying it also has a kind of broader significance, you know, whether it's just in the history of technology, certainly in the history of sort of California culture, which I think you also sort of set stored up as a kind of um, avatar in a sense of a kind of sensibility that is really a kind of West Coast California sensibility. Yeah, he was attracted to that. I mean, from a very young age, long before he went to Stanford, he was caught up in whatever that special sense that you have when you're in California. I mean, people, a lot of people have tried to write about this going all the way back to the gold rush. What does it mean to be on the edge and what are the consequences? And that there is something that sets California apart. Stewart was part of that. Uh, he was attracted to it. He became part of it. And he came to define it in a sense uh, during the 60s and 70s. But there's, you know, the, I, I would guess the stereotype or what have you is, you know, sort of left left of center, to say the least. Um, but, but that's not really Stuart. He was a, kind of came out of a more of a different strand and possibly, you know, even has been become the 
um, you know, elder statesman of a, of a of a different brand. That's not a kind of classic left right uh, split, right? No, he, you can't put him in that box easily. I mean, you know, in college he was kind of a classic anti-communist. He read Ayn Rand. He was attracted to those libertarian ideas. But <clears throat> what do you make of a conservative who <clears throat> won't read the Wall Street Journal? because he doesn't like their editorial policies. What kind of a conservative is that? You know, I think that there was an arc to Stewart's uh, politics. You know, he decreed when he started the Whole Earth Catalog that there would be no politics in the Whole Earth Catalog, which is remarkable because it was started at the height of the anti-war movement. So that was kind of a, people saw that as a conservative uh, response. Uh, Stewart described himself as being on the psychedelic side of the anti-war or the Vietnam War discussion in this in this car. He, he, he tried not to be involved. He had this history of being in the U.S. Army. Um, he had a brother-in-law who had fought in Vietnam. So he never was an, a, a classic anti-war person. And he also sort of broke his rules in the catalog. Uh, early on, he got Gary Snyder to write something on the environment, which was very political. Um, so it wasn't perfect. But then I also saw that there was kind of an interesting arc to his politics. I mean, he started not as a classic libertarian, not in a Randian sense. He broke with that very quickly. But he, that those libertarian ideas of sort of do-it-yourself are very much about part of the catalog. But by the time, you know, not just uh, six years later, when he served in Jerry Brown's first administration as part of his kitchen cabinet, after being in, in Brown's government for a year, he came away having decided that there's a value to good government, what he called good government. So I would actually put him very close to Jerry Brown. What do you what do you call Jerry Brown? Where are his politics? I think that's sort of where I would sort of drop Stewart. I mean, he famously later broke with the environmental movement over things like nuclear power and GMO food. So the test of time. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it, it's still a hot button within the environmental movement. I mean, there is this constant uh, that I think that you, to understand Brand, you have to understand the fact that he took this thing called the Outdoor Life magazine pledge in the late 1940s, which is, and he can still recite it from from memory at 83 years old. And it's this uh, idea about taking uh, this serious commitment to protecting the nation's water, its air, its resources. And in that sense, I mean, it's kind of interesting. That's some place where I really sort of grew up on the other side of the environmental coin that Stuart did. I mean, I grew up in a Sierra Club family, uh, you know, take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footsteps. Stuart, uh, he calls himself, he, he refers to people like me as preservationists. And the other side of the environmental movement are the conservationists. And he argues that he got that out of his initial contact with American Indians, this notion that we're part of the environment and we have a responsibility to taking care of it. And that's sort of the thread that goes through all of Stuart's life. Let's come back to, I love this theme of, of, of your intersections with, with him and the intersections of the, the sort of tech story that you were such so instrumental in, in covering uh, for, for so many years at the Times. Um, Whole Earth Catalog it's, it also is kind of a Bible of technology, although not only or not primarily computer technology, but sort yeah. of tools. Access to tools, I think, was the sub, subtitle at one point, right? That's right. Um, there's kind of an ethos about sort of hacker culture, maker culture, all of which have obviously flourished in the, in, in the many in the years since. Yeah, that's uh, so. This gets into the puzzle part of Silicon Valley and where I changed my view of the world and about sort of what create what created Silicon Valley and the relationship between the Valley and the catalog. Um, 
In 2016, 2017, when Trump was elected, the national zeitgeist on the Valley flipped very quickly from Silicon Valley can do no wrong to Silicon Valley can do no right. And in 2017, there were two books that were published that sort of captured that shift. One was by Jonathan Taplin, Move Fast and Break Things. The other was by Franklin Foyer, World Without Mine. And what really struck me is they both begin with biographical descriptions of Stuart Brand. Well, how is that? And so basically, the, the idea is let's go back and look for the original sinner. And they decided that, you know, they call Stuart a digital utopian, uh, something that he cringes at. He doesn't think of himself as a utopian. He thinks of himself as a pragmatist. But that's another story. But this is what really surprised me and, and sort, of, sort of flipped my way of looking at the Valley and its relationship to the catalog. Um, you know, Steve Jobs famously gave a commencement address at Stanford in 2005, where he called the Valley, uh, he called the catalog uh, Google before Google, and talked about how inspirational it was. And so you can see those thread lines. And you talked yourself about even your generation was influenced by the catalog. It had a tremendous impact on American culture, and it allowed people to reinvent themselves. I think mean, that was a significance. There, you know, information was scarce at that point. And people would stumble across something in the catalog and their life would go in a different direction. I found that over and over and over again, that that was true about its it, its impact. Well, so Stuart gave most of his journals to uh, Stanford in 2000, and both Fred Turner and I were in there and read them. And I didn't find what I was looking for because I, you know, Stuart ran the camera for this famous computer demonstration given by Doug Engelbart in 1968. And I was hoping to see something about that in the journal. There wasn't. So when I started this project in 2018, um, Stuart has this ramshackle office in, in Sausalito, and he went into the back room and he was looking around. He found another journal that he had given to, uh, to Stanford, um, and it's a remarkable document. And what I found in that journal, it was an account of uh, Stuart's attempt in 1967 to create an educational technology fair at the San Mateo County Fairgrounds. And if you read the funding proposal for it, it's almost shocking because all it was was the Maker Fair 30 years too early. Anyway, he failed. Um, he couldn't raise the money. And that was uh, uh, what preceded the Whole Earth Catalog, which was his next project after that. But what's in the journal are two things that really surprised me. And the first thing is this simple statement in August of 1967 of Stuart Brand saying he's showing up in Menlo Park to let his technology happen here. So think about that for a second. Everybody else is going back to the land and going to live on communes. What is it that Stuart Brand saw that caused him to come to the place where Silicon Valley was being formed at exactly the right moment and the right, right time? It's spooky. You know, the valley was named in 71, but all the forces that were creating the valley were already alive and awake when Stuart Brand showed up. The other thing I found out that was significant, you mentioned access to tools. If you ask Stuart where he got this access to tools subtitle, he'll say, I was just channeling Buckminster Fuller, because, of course, Fuller said, if you want to change the world, give someone a tool. But what I found in the journal is that he was much closer to Engelbart during 1967 than I realized. He was trying to persuade Engelbart to come to his fair, and Engelbart was trying to persuade Brand to join his augmented human intellect project. And Brand. Okay, I think you have to pause and just give a the, the brief. Oh, yeah. Uh, what, who's Doug Engelbart? 
who's Doug Engelbart? Yeah. Because I know he was, uh, uh, and this is again is one of the the through lines from 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 store two. I know he was, you know, uh, a, a key source and friend yeah. of yours through for many years as well. Yeah. So Engelbart is significant. Uh, he was the the first one. He took ideas from a man by the name of Vannevar Bush, who was a, a well known physicist about information machines and how they might augment human intelligence. And he began developing that technology. And the work that Engelbart did, I mean, he developed the computer mouse and he basically developed Microsoft Office before Office. And and all those ideas were then taken away from Engelbart's group and went to Xerox Park, where they, they went then went on to Apple and to, to Microsoft. I mean, that's the simple idea, but they began with Engelbart. Engelbart was the guy who understood that the computer was a universal tool. And that was a significant thing. And Brand got that very early on. And he actually, much more than I realized, he became an acolyte to to um, Engelbart at that point. I mean, he was even going up to Eugene and giving lectures on computers in uh, at Ken Kesey's brother's house. Uh, Stuart doesn't even remember this. This is the adva- advantage of having contemporaneous documents, which is the first thing you need to learn as a biographer is that they make a huge difference. But so when I saw that, what I realized was that all those people who basically sort of trace Silicon Valley back to brand have got it wrong. The whole earth catalog was actually an outgrowth of things that were happening in the mid peninsula that led to Silicon Valley. And that early impact that the whole earth catalog had on the broader American culture grew out of the same forces that were creating Silicon Valley. Well, so draw that back together then, because we, you know, we've, We've seen um, uh, how this, like you said, this sort of California sensibility, you know, comes partly out of the '60s, you know, um, uh, '70s, '80s. I sort of came came into it in the '80s. I always think that, you know, you could sort of look what was going on, you know, in college towns that, like I was in in the in the '80s, and then 40 years later, all of those things are are mainstream American. Uh, culture now, from legalized marijuana to you know gay rights to solar panels to to organic food, um, it took forty years to sort of pierce the mainstream. But you're saying it's really not a forty year arc from the '80s; it's really more like a sixty year arc to, to now. And um, Stort was there, and then also kind of played a role in bringing it into broader awareness or broader population, broader audience. Yeah, I mean, Stuart was president of creation. The other thing that you, you didn't mention is that that was the point at which, um, you know, this culture war we're still involved in today began. I mean, that you know, that we, we, much of what is a, American politics is about today is in response to the stuff that grew out of that counterculture in the 60s. And we're still fighting well, many of those battles. Indeed. And then there's also the sort of, sometimes uncomfortable reckoning that some of the ideas, you know, may not have, have been always the best ideas and a kind of, you know, cor- cor- correction um, that has ensued in a sense. And as you said, the tech, the tech ideal, the tech utopian ideal, as it were, of you know, everybody being connected and that creating a kind of uh, world of, you know, cooperative world of, you know, of full transparency and accountability for, you know, has turned out into, again into something different, or at least the story about it has, yeah. has turned out different. And, you know, so what, so how do you sort of, how do you sort of parse all, all that? Um, was it not true then? Or did, as you said, you're not a determinist, so maybe other forces intervene? No, I think that, well, so the, the here, the first there's the question about utopianism. Um, you know, there, there is this sense that there was this, 
utopian ethic uh, ethos back then. You know, I think that's that's true to an extent that people, a lot of people, felt that these digital technologies would transform the way the world in a positive way. I, I certainly was part of that world. I, you know, it, it, the irony is that at the same time I believed that. Um, I was also reading cyberpunk science fiction, which had a much darker view of the future. What was it about cyberpunk that I didn't get? Because the science fiction writers were the ones who were the uh, the best sociologists in the sense of predicting the future. They understood this this dark side. And, you know, the interesting thing is that Stuart, uh, well, first of all, the, the ideas that would come together in the formation of the well, which was start, an early online system in 85, started just before the internet era, um, he had been thinking about since he was around Engelbart in 68. Um, that's what I found over and over again is Stuart, Stuart's ideas would bubble for a long time and then emerge later. But I think none of none of us understood exactly the second order effects of these connectivity things that went on. Um, you know, everybody thought in the, I remember in the Clinton era that um, using the internet to push democracy out into the rest of the world was going to be a very powerful force. And nobody realized that the internet was actually the most powerful Trojan horse in history. And it was a two-way street and it would allow for the subverting of de democracy. That was a, a, a slow reckoning. And, you know, I think that gets it. Uh, at, at something about Stuart's uh, personality or his view of the world. He, he, he has not, uh, he has chosen not to focus on the potential dark sides of technology. He's, he simply will not go there. Um, his wife, Ryan, Ryan Phelan, does. But Stuart, Stuart uh, has, has remained optimistic. In 1985, when he started The Well, he was interviewed by KQED Focus. And even though at that point he knew about some of the dark sides because he had been involved in something called Eyes, which was an early online system, and he realized that in when people are anonymous, they would behave in different ways that were really quite negative. He already had that insight. And he, in fact, tried to design the well to deal with that and ultimately felt that he failed. But he was interviewed by KQED Focus, and the pull quote in this magazine is really quite remarkable. He says, communicating by computer helps suppress our animal urges. When you commu communicate by computer, you communicate like an angel. Well, you know, I looked at that and my eyes crossed, but actually, you know, I kind of believed that early on too. So I can't be too critical of him. We, we learned a lot that, you know, that this is not, you know, John Perry Barlow thought that this was going to be this utopian world that would be away from the dark side of the physical world. And then we learned that these networking technologies are simply a mirror for the all the good things and the bad things that we experience in the world. And it took a while to learn that. And I think for Stuart too. But leaving aside then the particulars, just how do you channel the sort of ongoing, you know, and, and future relevance and legacy of the kind of thinking? I mean, like if we talk about a lineage that might go from all the way from Neil Cassidy and Jack Kerouac through Kesey and, 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 and Stuart Brand. And then, and then in my, in my estimation down through you and, and, and then a bunch of folks coming up, um, you know, what is, what are the sort of essential, you know, sort of lessons or, or, or life lessons, I suppose, from Stuart Brand's life? Yeah. Life? So, so Stuart, um, you know, in the sixties, um, he had this experience on the rooftop of a San Francisco apartment where he began wondering about why there was no photograph of the whole earth. And uh, uh, he actually put then a picture as, taken by a satellite on the, the cover of the, Polish catalog, and it became a symbol. Um, 
it was an important symbol because I think to this day, it's still the only symbol I can think of that doesn't divide humanity. All the other symbols put us in one group or the other. And the, the symbol of a whole earth is a unifying symbol. And, uh, it, you know, it was contemporaneous with a movement then around what's, I think, described of as planetary consciousness, uh, which I think is why Stuart is still relevant today more than any other reason. I mean, there's also a lot of stuff about independence and being able to invent your own life. And he served as a role model for your generation, my generation. Um, Steve Jobs uh, famously, uh, you know, um, stay foolish, stay hungry was this, uh, you know, the signifying aphorism that was on the last page of the whole earth epilogue that Jobs uh, basically left the Stanford graduating class of 2005 with. But this notion of a whole earth, um, in the 60s, it displaced the symbol of the mushroom cloud um, in a, you know, with a positive symbol of human hope. In the 50s, if you grew up in the 50s, the, the symbol that, that you know, basically pushed us all apart was the, the possibility of a nuclear war. And of course, we're right back there now. And so I think that the symbol is more important now than it, than it has been for decades. Well, thank you, John Markoff, um, the author of uh, uh, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. Congratulations on pulling that off. Um, uh, there are so many people who are going to be uh, interested to read it, um, who are in it, and, and a whole community of, of folks who, who know them and have been following them. So um, hats off to you for, uh, for, for digging in, and um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking the time, David. This was fun. That's going to do it for this Agents of Impact podcast. You can read more about Whole Earth, Stuart Brand, and John Markoff at impactalpha.com. Big thanks to John, to our producer Isaac Silk, and to the whole team at Impact Alpha, investment news for a sustainable edge. I'm David Bank, editor and CEO. I look forward to seeing you again soon.